Earth. Fire. Air. Water. When I was a boy, my father, Avatar Aang, told me the story of how he and his friends heroically ended the Hundred Year War. Avatar Aang and Fire Lord Zuko transformed the Fire Nation colonies into the United Republic of Nations, a society where benders and non-benders from all over the world could live and thrive together in peace and harmony. They named the capital of this great land Republic City. Avatar Aang accomplished many remarkable things in his life, but sadly, his time in this world came to an end. And like the cycle of the seasons, the cycle of the Avatar began anew. Hey, everybody, and welcome to a uh, new episode of Animates. I was going to say a Christmas season episode, but that would be really misleading because we're not doing any kind of Christmas seasonal media. So it's just a regular episode of Animates that we happen to be recording and releasing around Christmas time. Um, I'm Paige. I'm Chris. And today we will be discussing Avatar, the Legend of Korra. Um, so earlier this year, we covered Avatar, the Last Band Airbender. And so now we'll be covering its sequel or successor series, The Legend of Korra, affectionately referred to as just Korra by a lot of folks. I really like this because for a show that was on Nickelodeon, it gives us a whole lot of this. This show seems very tailor made to uh, a lot of political stuff. Not yeah, that it was intentionally political per se, uh, but we get to talk about just as a preview, like literal fascism, revolutionaries, the development of industry and technology and its disruptive influences on culture. I mean, some of that was in the original Avatar 2, but a lot of it comes to a head. We get to talk about tradition and spirituality and uh, their effects on the world in uh, a way that is not metaphorical in this world itself, but can be used as a metaphor to understand the actual world where spirits aren't Okay, y'all gonna at me out there, but spirits aren't real, um, sort of deal. It's I mean, I, that's my position, but of course you can argue with me. Let's just <laughs> say spirits are tangible yes. in this, you know, in the Avatar universe. Spirits are creatures and individuals that you can see and interact with, and that have a tangible existence in the world. Uh, today we're going to set up, so uh, we'll probably talk mostly about season one cast and the setup of the general show. There's a lot of recurring cast, so in the future we will oftentimes be able to just say, here's who's new on the scene, but we stick with a lot of characters, which is nice because we get a lot of arguably more character growth than we saw in the first Avatar. Uh, there is another season an additional season where crazy things happen um, that we get to talk about. So obviously there's more there, but um, 
this show came on the heels. Well, I shouldn't say the heels. Came on the back of the success of the original uh, Avatar The Last Airbender. Right? Very serious Western. I, I'm just going to say Western anime. Let's just call it that. For me, it's Yeah, I just, think that's fair. Like Western anime on a kid's network, serious topics, war, death, violence, you know, all the stuff you really love your kids to see. It's really, it's it's very intense. I think I would argue that it has been just as successful uh, critically and commercially as the original series was. But I also think it's very clear that they were creating a series intended for young adults who had watched Avatar as children more so than they were creating a new series for a new generation of like middle school aged children um, because the characters are older, uh, the emotional themes and their interactions are more complex and more mature. There's more violence. The political themes are a lot more complex. It's just generally, it is a more mature show than Avatar. And I don't mean that in saying it's better. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's literally more grown up than Avatar. Which is kind of a shame because we'll see that as we get into the later seasons of the show, like Nickelodeon in a way kind of pulls support for it. Uh, we get to talk about this was occurring at a time where streaming, uh, streaming services were beginning to pop up. A lot of content was moving online to the web. And so you see this really great show not get the traditional ratings acclaim, but get like wide, widely watched and acclaim elsewhere. And Nickelodeon just like fucking not knowing how to support a show that's doing so well in an age where they can't back it up with ratings. So, yeah. It's and also, transition. actually, what's really funny is without even intending it, uh, we are just two days away from the fifth anniversary of the season series finale um, of the show. So it's been it's been five years um, since the show ended. And I think that in those five years, it's really held up. Um, I don't think that there is any material in it that, you know, on today's like online world would get like called out or you know for being like problematic or whatever um and it's still like really excellent it's a really great show i've watched the entire series this is probably the third or fourth time now and i enjoy it every time so with um it originally started airing in 2012 which honestly seems way later than I feel in my memory that it was like I, I was a senior in college and of course I, I I was in grad school when it finished airing and to me I just don't remember it being that close like close in time to be honest but it was <laughs> it was <laughs> um, finished airing in 2014 so they did for the four mini like 12 episode seasons basically uh, over the course of two years, which is like a lot. They did a lot in a very short amount of time. 
They did. It's 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 really impressive. Um, so what I think we should do here is just give. So we're going to. Sorry if you heard a sound. I keep bumping the table. Um, we're gonna do what we did with the original Avatar series, and we're gonna cover a se- a season per episode, just because it's a very rich world, and we feel like in order to really do it justice, we need to stretch it out and cover it over multiple episodes. So we're gonna primarily talk about season one here but first let's just introduce the show a little bit um we've mostly been talking about it sort of abstractly but at the opening of Korra we are in the same world 70 years after the events of the last airbender Aang has passed away and there's a new avatar her name is Korra and she's I don't think they ever explicitly state her age. I would say, what, probably 16, 17 at the opening? Yeah, so she's not... It's hard to physically tell, but mentally, she's definitely a fucking teenager. Yeah, all the characters are several years older than the main characters of Avatar were. So there's definitely the impression that our main cast... Um, you know, our analog to our four main characters and Avatar, right, are in their late teens at the beginning of the show. And I'd say that by the end of the show, they're in their very early 20s, like maybe 20 through 22. Um, that's the impression that's given by what's going on in their lives and sort of their emotional growth during it. Um, so the world now has the fire nation is now no longer like a serious political force. In fact, they seem to be pretty isolationist, honestly, from stuff that comes up throughout the series. And the world is basically divided into the same countries it was during Avatar, except there's also a United Republic, uh, that is made of former territory of the fire colonies in the earth kingdom and its capital city, Republic city, which is where one of Aang's children lives, his son Tenzin, who is an airbender with his family. And um, in season one, we mostly are in Republic City because Cora comes from the South Pole, where she's from, to Republic City to train on airbending with Tenzin. So it's really fun because the first chapter of the first Avatar was about finding the airbender. Like, oh, we've got an airbender now. And he travels to the air temples and he really has to get around. And now it's like, oh, we have an avatar that knows everything, has already ma- quote unquote mastered the other forms except airbending. So we get a nice contrast here where we're mostly not seeing airbending. Yeah, it's it sort of creates a sense of closure because the book's... Avatar The Last Airbender only got three seasons, so it got the books uh, Water, Earth, and Fire, and so the first book of Korra is Air. Um, It's also, uh, it's interesting that whereas The Last Airbender was about these young children who are still kind of learning how to master their powers, Korra is a fully realized avatar by the end of season one. She already has mastered three of the elements by the time we meet her. And all of her companions, well, her bending companions are actually 
incredibly powerful master benders at the time that she meets them, which means that the fight scenes are really cool. Yeah. <laughs> like, whenever they do bending in Korra, it's so cool. <laughs> Uh, this is something that becomes readily apparent in season, like, the even the jump between season one and season two, like, the quality, like, just skyrockets uh, in terms oh, yeah. of, like, movement and uh, just, like, a sense of motion. When they're fighting, like, other things in the future that are really nimble, you're just like, wow, holy crap. This is... Yes, it's, inc- it's incredible because the thing is, um, some, of the, some of the characters that we'll introduce... Um, are their pro benders. So there's now a sport in the world that's pro bending where they essentially use, you know, kind of like think of it like UFC or something like that. So they use martial arts as like a small team sport for entertainment. And so some of Korra's companions are pro benders, which means that like they're, you know, they're also you know, they're not the Avatar, but they're, like, equally powerful, basically, within their specific bending style. Uh, so, uh, let's go ahead and introduce the main cast for the first, and we'll we'll include uh, good guy, like, quote-unquote, the, the heroes and the antagonists, just to set the stage. Um, we've already talked about Korra. Avatar, she's a fiery 16, 17-year-old girl who is all all brawn she's very like in in a good like in a non uh she's very masculine she's a very masculine character yeah she's like a she's very much a tomboy kind of character which is uh it allows us to do some interesting stuff with gender because you know she's still like very much likes boys and wants to you know, like be soft and like spend time, you know, romantically with people, but um, which is kind of, you know, t- it's typically something that's positioned in opposition to being a tomboy in in our culture. So it's sort of an interesting character conflict to watch. Um, I also I've lost my train of thought. Go ahead. So um, yeah, it's interesting to watch. A lot of times, she's the kind of character where she is her own worst enemy. She's like the original Luke Skywalker before he, like, learned control in Return of the Jedi. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, is that she is really, really different from Aang, and they make it very clear from the very beginning, because the first, like, minute of the show is basically Order of the White Lotus people um, checking to see if this little Southern Water Tribe girl is actually the Avatar or not. And a little baby Korra like bursts in. She's bending all the elements. She's and she says, "I'm the Avatar. You better deal with it." <laughs> and then you know we flash forward to present day, and so you know immediately this is a completely different kind of Avatar. This is this person is nothing like Aang. Uh, a lot of development goes on with her. Lot 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 of the plot ends up being driven by her. To put it. Gently, poor decision making. <laughs> um, and by her emotional development. She's also like strangely gullible. Like she for for her obstinance, when when she hears something that she does believe in, she's just like, okay. Like, yeah, I'll go with this. We can go, yeah, that sounds great. Let's just go change the world. You know? 
on a whim with no evidence. Um, See, I think that is the major thing that connects her to Aang. It's the major thing that makes you think, oh, yeah, the Avatar is the same person over and over again. You know, she's a reincarnation. Uh, Her naivete, I think, really connects her to Aang because Aang was sort of moony-eyed and naive in that same way. Something tells me that Kiyoshi was not that way. (laughs) True. Um, Mm -hmm. Roku was kind of like that, though, in a way. Yeah. So maybe it's semi-reoccurring. Yeah. So just so everyone knows, Korra is voiced by Janet Varney, who is uh, an actress that any if any of you watch You're the Worst, you'll recognize her from that. She's Becca. Um, we've got some actually pretty big names for voice actors in this series. We, okay, so Korra, Korra gets an entourage, the new team Avatar, um, they're all teenage fuckboys. <laughs> no, I mean, kind of. Um, I mean, that's more of a season two problem. But <laughs> <laughs> We do have a fuckboy season mm-hmm. in the show. Um, so the she meets two... She meets two uh, pro-benders. She's they're brothers. Enam- she's enamored by the idea of pro-bending when she finally gets into country mouse in the big city sort of syndrome and uh the two brothers are named damako and bolin and they are uh, a firebender and an earthbender respectively and these two characters end up they all end up becoming very close friends you get some love triangle stuff happening almost immediately because they're teenagers and that's just you know hormones hormones and emotions and you're the avatar. Wow. Star power. Um, yeah. And there's a little bit of like a red oni blue oni thing going on with them. It's not quite the types that we would normally associate with those tropes in anime. But Mako is this very sort of uh, he's cool. He's distant. Um, he's kind of an asshole, uh, meditative, serious kind of guy. He's, he's a conventional hottie, um, and he's the firebender, you know, and then Bolin is, he's just a sweet dope. He's a big goofball. He wears his emotion on his sleeve. He falls in love with every girl he meets. Um, he just wants to have a good time, but at the same time, he wants, he still wants people to take him seriously. Yeah, it's And he's the earthbender. It's classic dad and Chad. (laughs) Dad and Cad issue. They're like... Okay, so a lot of times in um, there's actually a really interesting uh, division between like research on people who would make good dads and then sort of their antithesis, which is people who are sexy but would but it would make poor dads, and they're called cads, dads and mm-hmm. cads. We get a nice little dad and a cad here. Um, I mean that changes over the course of the show, but sort of as archetypes, that's where they end up starting out. Yeah, for sure. And uh, the way that Cora hooks up with them in the show is she like breaks into the bending stadium and uh, ends up joining their pro bending team because they no longer have a water bender. And that creates conflict between her and Tenzin, who's voiced by J.K. Simmons, who you will rec- if you don't know him by name, you'll recognize him as, oh, my God, that guy from literally everything that's ever been made. Um, he's in so many things. Uh, so Tenzin is 
Aang's youngest son and his only airbending child, who is also a counselor on the ruling council of Republic City and has a family and they live on Air Temple Island in the Bay of Republic City. Um, So he is supposed to be teaching Korra airbending and they end up in a lot of conflict due to both personality differences and Korra's inability to deal with authority. Yeah, Tenzin ends up being a very interesting character because he's quite different than Aang despite believing that he is like... Tenzin is very different than his father was. Um, But Tenzin has like... There's a lot to unpack because he was the only airbender born after Aang. So he's like, he's tasked with rebuilding airbenders to which his wife also feels a lot of that pressure. Um, yeah. And we get into a lot of that, particularly in season two, when we meet Aang's other children and we get to see some, uh, sibling conversations. We learn a little bit more about what their childhood was like and what Aang was like as a dad. Um, but let's, we'll save that for season two, but it is very clear from season one that Tenzin is a very, very serious person, very consumed by the idea of duty, um, very consumed by the idea that it is his duty to carry on an entire culture, you know, that was genocided out of existence. Um, and he has three children with his wife, Pema. And they are all really cool. Um, their names are Iki, Janora, and Milo. And at the end of the season, they have another baby who is named Rohan and is never really a person because he's a baby for the whole series. Um, and the kids become bigger characters as the show goes on. So it might be more worth discussing what they're like and who, you know, does their voices and stuff in season two. But let it be known that they're there and they also all have like distinct and interesting personalities that grow in interesting ways throughout the show. Um, it might help just to say their names because they might come up once or twice. I did. Um, I said their names. Oh, we're good. Sorry. <laughs> I am. I'm already thinking ahead. Tons of ideas are already racing in my brain. Um, yeah. What the hell, Chris? Come sorry. On. I, I think 20 steps ahead. It's 5D chess. Um, <laughs> Uh, um, okay, so the last member of Team Avatar is our non-bender, uh, Asami Sato. And in case you were wondering, she is also absolutely nothing like Sokka. <laughs> she is not the comic relief character in any way. Um, she does not feel unappreciated or like she has to prove herself. She is extremely confident in herself an extremely competent person from the beginning and you are never in any doubt about it and always super cool calm and collected while still managing to be like a very warm person um asami really is the best even when everybody else is being an asshole sami asami is still perfect (laughs) you never feel dragged along by her even when she's being dragged along by literally every other person (laughs) she gets the shit she gets a shit deal a lot of times awful stuff happens to asami all the time and she just like manages you know so her uh, dad is a wealthy industrialist he invented cars We, we find out that in this world the same person invented cars 
airplanes and mech suits. <laughs> um, so that's her dad. And so one of her skills is cool stunt driving. Like she can drive cars and boats and stuff really, really well, which makes her super helpful. She um, she ends up being like a sort of a smart person in her own right. She learns self-defense so she can fight. She gets cool tools in order to be on the same level as the benders that she's fighting with. And she ends up being a part of the love cube, <laughs> that uh, triangle cube that develops because they're teenagers. And of course, every opposite sex person has to explore every other opposite sex person as a potential partner before hey, we eventually Hey, there's never settle. an Asami Bolin pairing. <laughs> That's true. You do get super best friend vibes for like... Yeah, whenever Asami and Bolin hang out, it's super cute and fun and they just have a nice time. So that's good. That that pair is never explored and, and is left to be what it is without all that pressure. Yeah. And so just one last major character, um, and then we can talk a little bit more about the world itself and some of the some of the plot elements of season one is Lin Bei Fong, who is the oldest daughter of Toph Bei Fong. And she is chief of police, and the chief of police includes, like, an elite metal-bending squad. Um, it seems like what Toph um, basically noted, like, uh, anarchist <laughs> and person with major problems with authority, Toph Bei Fong, became a cop. And then her daughter also became a cop. Yeah, um... I also like to refer to Lin Beifong kind of as like a walking defense mechanism slash avoidant attachment. Oh my God. She's so fucked up. Yeah. It, it's she's, dude. before you ever hear anything about what Toph was like as a mom. Bad. Like the second, she was a the, bad mom. Yeah. The second you meet Lin, you're like, Oh my God, Toph was a bad mom. Not surprising. <laughs> so there's tons of mom issues. Later you meet, Lynn's family and there are tons of issues there. It's fucked up. Um, oh my god, I can't wait to season three to talk about Beifong family shit. Toph arguably, like, I'm glad she had children because they end up being very cool, but yeah, Lynn Lynn is sort of evidence that Toph probably should have thought about having kids. And, and it's apparent that, like, there were multiple fathers involved. Like, um... Yeah, but we'll we'll get that's that's for later. We'll talk about that when it when it's time to talk about it. Um, just so everyone knows, <laughs> in season one, we do see Katara. We talk with Katara. Katara has a relationship with Korra, as like apparently Katara is considered like the greatest healer in the world, and she's kind of a, a respected figure throughout the world. But it's noted that Sokka is definitely dead, as is Aang, obviously. And it's not really addressed in season one whether Toph has passed away or if she's around somewhere but just not hanging out. And also, uh, I think it's worth noting that we never meet any descendants of Sokka. So if he had a family, it's not discussed and we don't meet any of them in the series. We, we do, however, briefly meet the descendants uh, of our lovely little fiery favorite Fiery firebender. Oh, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, we meet his grandson. Um, it's great. He looks exactly like an adult version of him. He looks like a grown-up Zuko. His name's Iroh, and he has the same voice actor as Zuko. They're just, like, playing with your heartstrings with that one. And... um it's really cool because you learn that eventually like zuko went back and was you know very instrumental in getting the fire nation into a place where they were a part of the world and now they run now they run the entire world's military isn't that just like that's what a story of trust no Iroh is himself individually the general of just the United Republic's military. Come on now. (laughs) Those ships had Fire Nation markings on them. Did they? I didn't notice that. They did. I'm almost entirely sure. Oh, hmm. Well, they call it the United Forces, so I don't know. It makes sense. um, Zuko's also alive. It's not talked about in season one, but he does show up in season two. But what's funny is that even though Zuko is alive, um, it's made apparent even from season one that he's no longer Fire Lord. He's clearly abdicate. He's abdicated in favor of his daughter. Yeah, and part I, I can't remember. I heard room like I heard it stated one of the reasons that Aang is not alive was, if I recall, I can't remember if this is official or not. But like being in the ice prison fucked with him. Okay, because I've wondered about that a lot because we're only at the at this time, yeah. we are 70 years after the events of the first one. Aang was 12 at that time, so that would make him 82 at the time of these events. And Korra's already like at least 16 years old. So that means Aang died in his 60s. Right. Yeah. Which is Yeah, pretty... he didn't live to be very old. Which Avatars, like, theoretically should have longevity. I I don't know if that's ever stated, but it would make sense if they had longevity as a part of the deal. So I can't remember if it was official or not. Don't don't quote me on it. But he was in an ice prison for 100 years. And as we all know, that is not an advisable method of cryogenesis. So, (laughs) um, yeah. Anyway. Okay. So... Like I was saying, it's 70 years uh, past the time of The Last Airbender. And in the original series, there were some um, elements of modernization and industrial revolution happening. You know, the Fire Nation had metal, coal-powered ships. Um, There were war balloons, things like there were other mechanized vehicles. Um, but at the time period of Korra, they've sort of fast forwarded fully into the industrial age of this society and the cues that you get, um, aesthetically and technologically from the world range from anywhere from about, oh, 1880 to 1930 in terms of the type type of stuff that they have. So uh, technological disruption plays a huge role and the society overall is much more uh, in a state of flux, at least during the show. Mm-hmm. So we see a it's lot sort of-, of like a, it's like sort of diesel punk, right? They have cars, they have airships, they have boats, they have radios. Yeah, it's kind of sci- like there are sci fi elements here that that aren't just strict. They develop <laughs> fucking pl- uh 
platinum suits, mech suits. Uh, never Apparently, m- platinum is so pure that it can't be bent. Which is such a hilariously unscientific thing to say. Yeah, no, um, right? I'm like, come on, you guys. can't make you can't make other metals pure. Like, that's not even a dense metal. Like, what are you trying to say? Anyway, uh, it, it's it's just meant to be. Wow, platinum. That sounds rare. Yeah, I could see it being a special metal. Um, never mind that platinum is incredibly rare, and that building a mech suit out of them would be questionable at best. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so we get sci-fi elements in here. Shock gloves. Um, Anyone can hold the power of a chi blocker in their hand. <laughs> um, a big deal with the show um, has to center around a revolutionary figure that pops up I'm not going to say the whole story because that will take a while, but the main conflict of the show centers around Korra arriving in the city. And there's this new figure named Aman who is in charge of a movement that is centered around anti-bending sentiment. And this ends up being... A lot of people are disgruntled by developments in modern life and in their government, and it crystallizes around the idea that benders are the basically the bourgeoisie, that they are the ruling class that oppresses non-benders. And so Mon is going to unseat them and get rid of bending. He says forever. It turns out he can actually get rid of bending. And so plot develops around this Korra as the Avatar ends up fighting against Amon. A lot of really crazy things happen. Amon is eventually defeated in a really, (laughs) really dark uh, way. But we get a lot of revolutionary conflict here. Yeah. And I think something that's really interesting about Korra as a series is that it has seasonal arcs. So each season has kind of its own villain and all of the villains in each season kind of have a point, you know, their ideology or the point that they're trying to make. When you look at it on a surface level, you it's kind of attractive. You kind of see, okay, I, I see where they're coming from. But as you start to dig into it and break it apart, you realize always that it's it's based on a completely wrong-headed analysis of the world around them or it's based on a desire for personal power rather than the ideals that they're talking about. So Amon, the head of the Equalist, who's saying that, you know, benders hold all the power and we should take them down and all become equal and if we don't have bending anymore, there won't be any wars or problems and blah, blah, blah. But when you really start to look at what you see, what's shown to you in the world, you see that that's completely false consciousness because benders do not, I'm going to get like Marxist with it now, like benders do not constitute a class in a meaningful sense in Republic City. 
Most of the wealthiest people in Republic City are industrialists, are non-bending industrialists like Asami's dad or the Cabbage Corp people who are wealthy for the same reasons that industrialists in our world are wealthy. You know, they accumulate and hoard capital, right? And you also see that there is a large presence of benders in illegal street gangs. So if benders really did hold all of the power in society, there would not be such a large presence of benders participating in, 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 you know, street level crime, right? So it's one of those things where you look at it on the surface, you're like, well, bending has always been an important part of the society. There's almost a theocratic element to the reverence about bending. People who can bend can literally do magic, which makes other people vulnerable to them. But then if you think about it in terms of real material power in the actual world of Republic City, that really has nothing to do with anything like it's power is constructed along class lines, just like it is in the real world. This ends up being uh, there ends up being a massive irony in Amon's methods, particularly as they center around use of technology. So the point was just made that industrialists actually had the power Amon teams up with an industrialist, with uh, Sato, Asami's father, who runs like the biggest, most advanced corp uh, industry company in the world. And using all of Sato's money and resources and inventions, he manages to take over Republic City, fuck over the military. He manages to basically attain all of his goals through the use of this tech. I can't see a more clear example of what Paige just said than that right there, that the benders weren't really the ones with power. Yeah, not only do they, is bending actually not, not the source of military might that it was in an age before technology, you know, but it also like, it holds very little material power. And I also think that that's pretty significant because all military power was centered primarily around bending during the last airbender. And it becomes clear that that is, if not already a thing of the past, then rapidly becoming a thing of the past in the world of Korra. You see that bending is still used in daily life for a variety of things and that there are benders who use their bending to do ordinary jobs. Like, for example, Mako picks up some shift work in a foundry where it's full of firebenders, like do doing firebending to do this job. But it definitely doesn't seem like, with the level of technology that's been created, with mech suits, with cars, with airplanes, with airships, um, with these shock gloves, uh, things like that, um, bending will no longer be the major source of military might that it has been throughout history. Uh, in, in addition to this, um, I think that, Part of the reason that at first Amon's message is pretty straightforward, like the reason that it feels so straightforward and perhaps very amenable to the the basic lives and strife of the people that follow him is because bending is really tangible. Like it's a very proximal, tangible form of power. Um, it is not the most powerful thing, but it's a power that is easy for people to understand and to get their heads around. Uh, 
part of the reason that large technological developments are so disruptive is because people's psychology is uh, oftentimes very slow to change and relies a lot on like the learning that they developed when they were young or that they had sort of always existed in. And in these times where power is transmuting into these very different forms, sometimes very distal, hard, uh, intangible forms of power, people, people don't resonate with them, even if some of them manage to intellectually understand the change, they don't evoke the same emotion, the same uh, ability to change their attitudes as a call to rally against something really close to home and tangible. So when people are being uh, oppressed in some way, it's really easy to say, well, hey, look at that person who can throw fire with his hands. Of course, like that is a immediately easy thing to understand. They're your oppressor, not this gigantic development in our society that you are super removed from. So I think that psychologically, that's that's why a lot of times people jump to certain ideas is because yeah. they're, they're proximal and easy to understand, but not necessarily correct. Yeah. And I think season one does a great job. There's there. It, Cora's really good at doing the show don't tell thing. And it really shows us that the reason that Amon's able to gain a foothold is because of the same reason that movements like this always do because of the kind of broad-based societal disruption and exploitation that comes along with this major social shift. You know, it shows that rapid industrialization and the rise of capitalism is affecting this world in much the same way that it affected the real world. We see tons of homeless people. We see slums. We see street kids. Um, we see criminal gangs. You know, like Bolin and Mako, they were orphaned and they were street kids. They participated in gang crime in order to get by. Now they're pro-benders and they're being completely exploited by like a manager and basically like get, living in a company town, essentially. You know, they don't have any money, even though they're pro-bending you know, three nights a week or whatever it is. So you see that this kind of disruption of community and poverty and exploitation is a real problem in the world at the at the onset of the show and remains a real problem in the world throughout the series and in Republic City, particularly since it's such a large metropolis. Um and that's sort of why, because of that instability, someone like Amon, who is really just seeking personal power, uh, basically revenge against the whole world, is able to gain a toehold in that and manipulate a bunch of people uh, into misidentifying the source of their immiseration. He really is sort of a playbook for a demagogue to come to power in a time of disruption. Like he does, he, he is a compelling, simple story. He claims to have been harmed by the structure he's fighting against. He uses a lot of showmanship and uh, smoke screens. 
He has a plan, like a super basic, we're just going to fucking take it all away. And he, he has a cell network. He can get people involved. He's training people uh, in techniques to fight benders. Um, he's giving tools to the people and getting them to, to go along with him. He really has just like an entirely sophisticated understanding of how to take advantage of this situation. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, just to talk about the plot a little bit to sort of point out how the facade falls away is it turns out that he is the son of um, one of the most infamous criminals uh, in the history of Republic City, who was a bloodbender, had his bending taken away by Aang, who then, you know, ran away to the Northern Water Tribe and started a family where he abused his sons, forced his sons to become bloodbenders, created all kinds of emotional strife in his family, which led to uh, his oldest son running away and resurfacing later as Amon, and his youngest son uh, also concealing his identity and becoming a counselor for the Northern Water Tribe in the city and also seeking personal gain and power through being basically a shady government official. Um, so it's like it's all this weird like, you know, crime family, personal revenge against the Avatar and and Republic City. It's it's all about his own like trauma with his dad, you know, and a desire for like personal power. It actually has nothing to do with with bending or wanting people to be equal. That's all just a manipulation. Yeah, very, very sins of the father stuff happening here where trauma is communicated through generations and on to others and just like chain of events kind of stuff. Um, it's, we really notice Amon's failure to grasp true consciousness of this kind of stuff when we see examples of people who do understand it. The hobos are, are okay, so there's this one hobo that Cora meets <laughs> on her first day in Republic City, and she's so discombobulated, she needs food and she doesn't have money, so she goes to a public park to fish, and... The hobo gives her some advice and she offers him a fish and later up the same hobo offers Team Avatar on the run from Amon's group who has taken over the city shelter and the hobo has true class consciousness. He does. The hobo's he, great. <laughs> he's like, we've got benders and non-benders down here helping each other out, trying to survive, getting along. Um... And it's great. It's great. Obviously, it's only a little snippet, but it's a true example that they that he understands. It's like everybody's just trying to survive down here. Hey, you know, that hobo has a lot more in common with a homeless bender than he does with Hiroshi Sato, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, gosh, there's so much to do, uh, get at here. Um, I'm trying to think of final thoughts for... For this because this conflict is the main uh, I guess we could talk about Korra's place and all of that not uh, from a summary point but usually we think of the avatar as this this person who is largely like they are supposed to drive things 
And I think mm -hmm. that this world really shows you that the Avatar is slowly going to become irrelevant. Because yeah, I mean, she, or at least the role of the Avatar in a modernizing world will have to be seriously rethought, right? Because she, as an individual, in a way, the world is making her relatively powerless. Mm -hmm. I think you could argue that when she's in the Avatar state, she could fuck up just about anything, and that's fair. I don't think she, you would say that her ability to affect her her proximate environment is still very, very potent. But in terms of her ability to sway the course of history, the Avatar's ability to affect change in people's lives is being stripped away by the development of technology and advanced government systems. Yeah, and I think something that's also good to point out with this is that you know, in in The Last Airbender, the political problems that Aang is dealing with are very straightforward. We have a country that has been warped by a nationalist, imperialist, uh, proto-fascist ideology into thinking that they are superior and should rule the world. And pretty much everyone who is not a soldier or a member of the government of that country is just like an oppressed ordinary person who like needs to be stood up for and will ultimately end up on your side, right? Whereas in Korra, it's not so straightforward. One of her major issues in the first few episodes of the season is she fails to comprehend why people would listen to Amon. She fails to comprehend why all these non-bending people might feel threatened by her or other benders, why they might feel that they're being oppressed, why there might be certain signs that could, with the right direction, lead them to identify their oppression with benders. Um, she completely fails to recognize that. She's just like, yeah, bending's dope. People who can bend are the coolest people in the world and really like sticks her foot in their mouth and is completely unable to empathize or consider that people have experiences that are different from her own. And, and that's partially because she's been isolated. Um, it's partially not her fault that the, the White Lotus and her father and Tenzin, we learn, have, have intentionally isolated her at the South Pole throughout her life. So she doesn't know what really like the people are going through. And so throughout this season, she, while at the same time, she maintains that like benders are not an oppressor class, that bending is very much like, it's like uh, if you're born a bender, it's like one of your limbs, you know, you have every right to exercise that power and to not have it ripped away from you unjustly. But that at the same time, like the non-benders of society need to be listened to and respected. And if they have concerns, you know, it's even though, yeah, it's like not benders as a class who are doing the oppression. There's a reason that they were able to identify their concerns in that way. And maybe some of those things should be addressed. Quite a big part of her journey is learning that it's complicated. Uh, this is sort of exemplified by eventually you, you, under, you hear Amon's origin story from Amon's brother, and Kor is the one to hear it. And it's all about their father turning them into soldiers for his own vengeance. And she's like, wow, that's the saddest story I've ever heard. And she walks away 
understanding that like he's not right we have to stop him but this situation is obviously not just not just as like oh wow he's just a terrible person and always has been so be it sort of deal so that's yeah that's important in her development yeah and like a lot of her personal development throughout the um season is just because with her airbending she's failing to airbend because she can't like open herself up to other parts points of view and other ways of moving through the world basically she cannot she cannot go with the flow she cannot be flexible she cannot be moved she is incredibly rigid and and stubborn and that prevents her from doing the best job of being an avatar and it prevents her from airbending and so you know, as was common in The Last Airbender, as you have emotional development, you also have development with your skills, right? She's able to airbend at the end. And uh, she also is able to enter the Avatar state for the first time uh, ever and truly connect to her spiritual self for the first time, which will be a major, that will be sort of a series arc for her, is her connection to the spiritual aspect of herself into the spirit world. She... She's also able to very, very nicely undo most of what Amon did, which is nice. She restores everybody's bending. It's it's a complex but mostly happy ending for for season now, one. I will say that the storyline of Amon and Yakon ends with a very upsetting <laughs> murder-suicide. Okay, I still think it's double suicide because Amon... Okay, so Amon... And his brother are driving away in a boat. Amon's like, we're going to start over. And um, his brother reaches for uh, an electro glove and unscrews the head to the gas tank. And he puts his hand over it. And you're just like, what the fuck is happening? But Amon, like, he sheds a tear. And he goes from smiling to frowning. And he sheds a tear as he looks into the distance. And then... The fucking boat explodes. I yeah, think I like Amon think that he frowns and sheds a tear because, like, he's realizing that, like, maybe they can't really start over. Maybe he can never be happy. Like, maybe he's permanently broken or whatever. So Chris and I are in disagreement over whether it's a double suicide or a murder suicide. But they both die in a boat explosion is the main thing. <laughs> yeah, like, that's such... That, that right there felt... Um, there's no closure. There's no resolution that leaves us feeling like that story ends so badly. Like if you think yeah, about it's what they fucking went through, heartbreaking. If like what they went through and how they ended up, nobody. Like they were both really bad people, but they never had a chance to be anything other than bad people. But it's super nihilistic. Like nobody gets justice. Nobody get like there's like justice doesn't have a say. Um, mm-hmm. There's just there's no chance for anything, and it just ends. And it was bad, and it was just bad, and that's all there is to it. Like what the ha- like that being on a kids network is like what the f- wow? How did yeah, Nickelodeon dude. let that? How did they let that happen? I'm glad I honestly they did. don't know. Like, I'm because, glad you know, when we get to happens. season three, we will also discuss this getting pulled from 
uh, broadcast to online only and when it got pulled and why we think that happened um, when we discussed season three. But yeah, it's it's shocking to me that that was broadcast on Nickelodeon because there's no it's very clear what happens. And it's also it's sort of a moment to be like, uh, by the way, these are not going to be the villains for season two. They're not coming back. Yeah, but still, there are a lot of ways they could have handled that. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm glad, it was I'm, really intense. I like it that like I and I like. No, it it's good. It's heartbreaking the, and and moving and a good story. It's yeah, it's just surprising. Also, <laughs> uh, so that happens, and then uh, another thing that features something that I like. That sort of features it's it's way less important than some of this other stuff but Tenzin and Korra's relationship to me is very interesting to watch as an educator and a mentor myself in that Tenzin is trying to teach a philosophy which is supposed to be flexible and flowing and he's anything but incredibly that. rigid so you you get this this happens with educators like more frequently than I think some people choose to admit that there's a massive disconnect between what you're teaching and the tenets of that thought that what you are actually teaching and Tenzin tries to teach Cora about being flexible when he is not being flexible he's he's a classic example of an educator who teaches to a program and not to students, a person who has his own hangups and they're getting in the way of addressing his students' needs. And she fails to learn and he blames her for it. Like he's very, he's sort of, to me, was very much an analogy for classical teaching methods. And eventually he learns to, he's like, wow, so pro bending really was a good teacher for you. I needed to I guess you needed something that was right, like right for you t learning and not what I thought was the best way for you to learn. And it was like a good, te it's a good teachable moment because Tenzin eventually learns his mistakes, but like a human being, he falls back onto his personality and his own hangups in season two. Uh, in fact, the beginning of season two starts with Korra butting heads with Tenzin again. So it's nice that this cartoon is dealing with these issues of tea. That's what I, I got. Yeah, and a lot I think part of, of the reason that Cora and Tenzin butt heads so much is that they're a lot more alike than either of them would really like to admit. Yeah, and I think the show recognizes that just because you realize something doesn't mean something is fixed. Like personality. Yeah, it's like he's like a 45 year old man. Just because he realized he was wrong one time doesn't mean that his entire personality changes. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, like there's that stability in the fact that things take time and you're going to make the same mistakes again. So that's that's cool. They didn't just wrap it up in a nice little bow. It's mature storytelling. No, I think that the character development throughout the show is, is is really mature storytelling, and it's part of why I really love the show so much. Um, and be, on that note, before we wrap up season one, I would like to just spend a little bit of the time talking about the um, 
basically romantic plot of the season because a lot of the emotional and interpersonal storytelling of the season has to do with the romantic subplot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So basically, like, Cora comes around and Bolin immediately likes her because Bolin likes every girl he ever meets. But Cora immediately likes Mako. And um, they're both kind of doing the Sundere thing where they're, like, kind of mean to each other and they're not getting along and they fight a lot. Um, But then Mako meets Asami and immediately falls for her and they start dating and so, like, Cora kind of goes on a date with Bolin and, and is having a fun time, but not that serious about it. And, and, and somewhere in the mix, she has a discussion with Pema, who is Tenzin's wife. And Cora's asking what you do, basically, if you like a boy, but the boy is with somebody else. And Pema's like, oh, I've been there. Tenzin used to date Lin Bei Fong for a long time, and I stole him away. So, like, Pema's fucking advice to this teenage girl is to go be a homewrecker. So, um, I would like to say the data suggests that I think it was between 10 and 15% of people in relationships respond that the beginning of their relationship was being pulled from a previous relationship. Good lord. It is a uh, mate poaching is a fairly common human behavior. Oh, but anyway, so Pema Pema tells Cora to be a homewrecker basically. And so then she like gets in another fight with Mako about like whether or not they like each other or whatever cuz Mako Mako does like her and is being shitty that like she's dating Bolin or whatever cuz he wants both girls to himself. And then she kisses Mako and Bolin sees and he's sad. But then he forgives everybody because he's the biggest hearted, most wonderful person in the world. And then he accidentally tells Asami and Asami breaks up with Mako and Mako and Korra start dating. And so like <laughs> the, the the romantic subplot of the season ends with Korra successfully homewrecking Mako and Asami's relationship and stealing Asami's boyfriend. And like Asami remains friends with them. Like, Asami and Bolin are both, like, much nicer, better people than either Mako or Korra at this point because they both forgive both of them and, like, stay friends with them even though they both did all this shitty stuff. Some of that is their circumstances. Like, they're all fighting in the trenches and so they really have no choice, I think. But... You walk away from it. The show doesn't say to Cora and Mako, like, you should feel good about this. I think you walk away understanding that, like, Asami and Bolin are the sympathetic ones. Yeah, and also um, we get to see a lot of Cora and Mako's relationship in action in season two. So, uh, and let me tell you, folks, they're not right for each other. <laughs> One word, Deterioration. <laughs> Yeah, and so that's like an interesting emotional subplot of season two as well is um, Mako and Korra's relationship and the love triangle situation with that. But um, so that's like the romance subplot. And I think that it very much goes to show like they're older than um, they're older than all the kids in The Last Airbender, but they're not adults. So there's going to be. Is there going to be a lot more romance? Yeah. Is it going to be a lot more serious and real than sort of like the pining and and childhood crushness of The Last Airbender? Yeah, it is. Is it going to like 
always be like healthy and they make decisions that are like good and kind and make sense? Absolutely not. That's not real life, especially not for teenagers. Yeah, they're fucking teenagers, man. Like they, yeah, and that's the thing is it's like it's suck. realistic behavior. As much as like some of it is shitty behavior, it's realistic. Yeah, like I, when I say teenagers suck, I kind of mean like it sucks being a teenager, and and it they're they're dumb, but like understandably, you know they make mistakes. We Absolutely. all to me the most shocking part of all of it is when Cora's like, "What do I do? I like Mako, and he's dating Asami." That Pema, like the married pregnant woman, is like, go wreck that home, girl. Like, fuck that bitch. Get your man. <laughs> go get you some dick. I, <laughs> I think we end up. And she I did think, that to Lynn Bayfong, the balls on Pema. Dude. I think, well, she, she seems like this really unassuming, quiet woman, but she fucking home wrecked Lynn Bayfong's relationship. Lynn put her in jail. Did she? Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, Tenzin makes a joke about that. It's like, ha ha, abuse of power, so funny. Um, <laughs> but, okay, so, uh, Lynn Beifong, by the way, um, she and Tenzin used to have a thing. It's kind of like the, re- it, it's weird, because a lot of times in the first, and in, in the series in general, they set up traditional fan service moments like callbacks to the original show and and they set up all of these things where in a lot of shows they do it and it's just sort of like saccharine and simple and then they set it up and then they just like stomp all over that they're like oh you wanted the children of the original duo to like form their own super team and have great relationships well guess what fuck you (laughs) and then they they did they they shat on it and said Tenzin and Lynn Beifong, like Tenzin left her, ended up with another woman. They have a bad relationship. Lynn is still messed up about it and is very avoidant attachment style about her entire life. Um, or it's like even in the first episode when Cora gets arrested and she sits down and Lynn's going to interrogate her. She's like, I'm Lynn Beifong. And she's like, Lynn Beifong? Top's daughter and Lynn's like we're not here to talk about that right now we're here to talk about the fact that you committed a crime <laughs> and she just like won't address it or talk about it at all yeah Lynn Lynn softens up as she's sort of forced to work with Tenzin and the Avatar which is nice because we get to see like she's actually a good person she just she's had a lot of shitty things happen to her in her life and so she's prickly Right, she's the yeah. She's, she's the super rough around the edges. Hedgehog's dilemma. She's the classic hedgehog's dilemma. Um, Absolutely, and it's like she butts heads with Tenzin. She butts heads with Cora, you know. Um, but ultimately, she's an extremely competent person who really believes in justice and doing the right thing and getting it done and protecting people, especially people that you care about. Um, you know, even if you can't always show them that you care about them. But then also, you know, in season two, we'll see what she's like as a boss. Uh, I'm sure you will expect it's not that great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like all the there's not really a single character in the show who isn't like very rich. Like even the airbender kids who are mostly just around as like comic relief in season one. So we haven't discussed them a lot. 
are all, you know, they're on screen probably the least of any of the main characters, but they're all very rich and have interesting personalities and, you know, growth and complex things that happen to and and with them. Um, it's a really, really rich show character wise. Um, it's just as rich as Avatar was. And I would argue even more so because they choose to work with older people in this. So there's a greater degree of emotional experience to be portrayed. Uh, just a side note, Lynn is voiced by Mindy Sterling, who is also in a ton of things. Yes. Everybody in this show is like, Pema is, Mar- is voice- voiced by Maria Banford, the famous comedian. Gray Delisle does voices in this. She's a famous voice actor. Um, Hiroshi Sato is voiced by Daniel Day Kim. Like, everybody. Everybody in this is big. Um, you know, each season we get big names for recurring characters. Uh, it's it's insane, the number of people who worked on this show. Uh, I Closing, sort of, there's... There's a lot more here, and I'm sure that we will reach back into the season one cookie jar uh, other times during our advancement into the later seasons, because they do they do callbacks. There are things that from the past they come up, but I think it would be really fun to do like little itty bitty things that like made us laugh or were nice callbacks to the first avatar um number one every avatar has an animal friend and Korra's animal friend is a polar bear dog named naga and it's so fucking cute it's just like a polar bear with the back legs tail and head of a dog and then the front she's like heavily chesty and She's so fierce and sweet and uh, she's just like she's just as good as Appa, but different. My favorite animal in this show is uh, more of the Momo analog, which is Pabu, <gasps> the fire ferret, uh, who belongs primarily to Bolin. Um, any basically any scene with Pabu in it in season one fucking kills me. Uh, I think probably my favorite scene is where after Bolin um, <laughs> sees Mako and Korra kissing, uh, Mako has to come get him from a noodle shop the next morning because he apparently got he essentially got drunk on noodles. He's like face down in a bowl of noodles with a noodle coming out of his nose and his eyes are all dark and he's crying. And Pabu's also he's like laying in the bowl of noodles and his belly is big and fat and. You know, Mako's dragging Bolin out of the noodle shop and Bolin's crying and complaining and Pabu tries to get off and his big fat belly full of noodles drags on the ground (laughs) as he leaves the shop and it just fucking kills me every time. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, he's like a bowling ball with legs. I love Pabu. Pabu's the best. And I love when like Bolin like makes Pabu move his arm. Like when he's like, we're going to go swimming and he makes Pabu move his arms, the little swimming motions. Just like... Pabu's great, Bolin's great combination. Pabu-Bolin moments are great. Uh, It's really cool to get some hints as to what happened in the Avatar gang's lives uh, through little flashbacks. We don't, they don't fixate on it. They bring it in without making it about the first team Avatar, which is always a huge struggle whenever you do shows with time jumps like this. Because people always want to attach the show to their previous heroes and it can get in the way of current here. It's like star Wars has the same issue uh, or kind of skirted the same issue 
with the original Star Wars cast and the brand new trilogy that has been coming out over the past couple of years. It's like they're there, but they're flawed characters. They aren't the focal point. Um, they manage to include them without making it about them. And that's a really hard balance to strike that I think they did pretty well here. Yeah, and Cora, they do it really well. I think they do an even better job than they do in the new Star Wars movies with it. And, you know, because we learn stuff like, oh, um, Katara is alive still, and I guess she and Aang had kids together. And, oh, I guess Sokka, like, he passed away at some time, at some point before this, but it looks like he was, like, a counselor in Republic City in the early days. And, you, you know, you just learn little things, little, you know, Toph was, she founded and was chief of the police of Republic City. You know, so you learn little things about them through, they find ways to make it relevant to the plot of the show itself and and still give us little tidbits about what happened to the original Team Avatar as adults. Small little things that Team Avatar was involved in in the original series that might seem like small little things become huge things in this world. Like, it really shows you the weight that history has on development. So Toph Beifong develops metal bending, and it becomes the basis for, like, an entire society in this show it's such a important development that uh, when we see it it's just like a novelty in the first one but here it's like no like think actually think about what being able to bend metal would allow people to do and then they just they go ham they go ham with it and it's great and it's amazing yeah it's amazing bloodbending Bloodbending shows up in very big ways. I mean, Amon's whole ability stems from bloodbending. So that is a huge little thing that, like, Katara was the reason that bloodbending gets outlawed. Um, I'm trying to think of other... Chi blocking? The, uh, tai Lee's art of chi blocking becomes the basis for, like, an entire martial art developed by Amon's revolutionaries. It, just little things that show up make reappearances in just shockingly huge ways. So that's mm -hmm. nice. That's really nice to see them do that. Um, yeah, it's 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 really, really cool. The, the last thing I'll say is that the entire aesthetic of the show is completely unique to anything that I had ever seen before. Um, 19, like, Gilded Age, jazz, like, Asian Western aesthetic fusion, like a fusion yeah, between it's like a, Chinese like and Chinese Japanese. Chinese diesel punk, <laughs> like, you know, like, I, I don't know, it's difficult to describe, but yeah, and it's like, I the, say diesel punk because they have, like, radios and they have cars and stuff, but there's also steampunk elements, like, there's a lot of trains, and and then in, in season two, they, like, really dive into a lot of the sort of turn-of-the-century aesthetic technology thing, so we'll get a chance to talk about a lot of the really fun stuff that they do, but it's just, it's so much fun to watch, and I just, I absolutely love how every episode has a previously on that's done like a newsreel, you know, it's black and white, and they have the guy doing the old-timey radio voice for it it's great yeah and the 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 build the architecture the character like the the costume design the set design all of it is it it is a fusion that is its own thing and it it it's just i've having jazz play in an avatar it's just 
it's so different than the last airbender like it in such a good fun way that i i i fell in love with it the first time i saw it. i was like this is gonna be great this is gonna be amazing and it it was for its content but also all of the aesthetics are just on they're on point they're 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 great yeah, it's really fantastic. And it's, again, it's so reflective of the way and a speed with which the real world that we live in changed. Yeah, it it's good for our, I feel like it's good for modern reflection. Like it gets you to really reflect on just how things change just like as fast as they do and what effect it has on people and watching people trying to cope with uh, falling away of the old ways and the ushering in of the new. And it's just, it's pretty timely. Yeah. I, I love it. It's a really excellent show. And I, I think it's worth noting that we've spoken for about an hour and 20 minutes, just about season one. It's like, it's really rich. It's, it's a pleasure to watch, and I'm really excited to be doing it. I'm really excited to talk about um, the next three seasons of the show. So yes, me we'll too. Have... It's it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, we might have, you know, the holidays are coming up, so it might be, we're not really sure how the timing's going to work, so it might be a couple of weeks before you get the next one, but, but rest assured, we will be giving you an episode for each of the seasons of Korra, um, just as quickly as we're able with the holiday season. Um and but other than that, Chris, I think I've uh, said everything that I wanted to say about season one. How about you? Yeah, we're, we're talking about Korra, and then that will be the end of our second season of this podcast, which is <laughs> nuts. It's absolutely insane to think about how long it's been, um, or we've just been talking about nonsense with each other, having fun, you know, all that good stuff. Um, yeah. We get to talk about some really excellent cartoons in the coming year. I'm excited. Spoiler alert. We're going to talk about things like Adventure Time. Shh, so, no, don't tell them. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm happy to be doing this and looking forward to the, to the new year. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm, I'm so excited to finish Korra. I'm so excited for everything that we're going to do in the new year. Uh, but tonight I am excited for a glass of water because mine is empty and my throat is dry. <laughs> the, the little things. It's all about the little things. It's about the little things. So as usual, thank you so much for listening to the show. We really appreciate it. And we hope that you have as much fun with it as we do. If you are listening to this on iTunes, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at Animates. You can connect with us on Facebook, Animates Podcast. Or you can send us an email about any of your thoughts, questions, theories. You know, if you just want to chat with us, if you want to ask us, like, what kind of shampoo we use because you're looking for a new one, you know, that's fine. You can email us. It's animates at gmail.com with the numeral 8 instead of the letter A-T. And as always, thank you so much for listening. I've been Paige. And I've been Chris. And this has been Animates.